In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Welcome to episode 26 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston and I'm Susan Brown. Coming up in this episode we're going to be covering the following topics. Liz? Well this is March and March is Women's History Month. Large focus on women this month and so our theme for this week's episode is Women in Scottish History and I am going to be looking at the Countess of Dunmore. Great. Helen? Well, I'm going to be looking at Mary Slessor, who was a mill worker from Dundee, who became a missionary in Nigeria. And I'm going to be looking at Catherine Scott Morton, back in our family archives, my great granny, who was involved in lots of different things to do with public service in Airdrie. So Liz, do you fancy kicking us off? I will do. And I'm kicking off with Harris Tweed. Now, Helen spoke about it a few episodes ago. And it's a topic that's well worth returning to in its own right. So I will leave the Harris Tweed aside for the moment because I'm more interested, because this is Women's History Month, in the woman who's gone down in history as the driving force in bringing this iconic Scottish cloth to the attention of the world. Her name is Lady Catherine Murray, Countess of Dunmore. According to the Harris Tweed Authority website, the Countess is remembered not only for her entrepreneurial eye, but also for her philanthropic qualities, with her good friend the Duchess of Sutherland proclaiming her to be a mother to her people in Harris. While there's no doubt about the role she played in bringing it to public attention, I want to probe a little deeper into her motives. Were they philanthropic? Were they driven by financial imperative? Or were they an attempt to salve a guilty conscience? Catherine Herbert was born in 1814 to the distinguished Earl and Countess of Pembroke, and at the age of 22, she married Alexander Murray, Viscount Fincastle, who on the death of his father a few months later became the sixth Earl of Dunmore. The newlyweds took up residence in London, where they moved in all the fashionable court circles. So it came as no surprise when Catherine was appointed to the prestigious position of a Lady of the Bedchamber to Queen Victoria in 1841. The couple had four children, but in 1845 the Earl died when his son and heir Charles was just four years of age and Catherine took on the role of tutor to her son, undertaking to run the family estates until he reached adulthood. While the family home was in London, 
The Dunmore properties comprised large tracts of land in both Stirlingshire, where Dunmore is situated, but also on the island of Harris in the Western Isles, thanks to purchases made by her father-in-law, the fifth Earl, in 1834. For those of you who know your Scottish history, the middle of the 19th century was a particularly hard time for the inhabitants of the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. In the aftermath of Culloden, ownership of the land had changed hands. Gone were the clan chiefs loyal to the Jacobite cause, and in their place, anglicised landowners, rewarded for their support of the British government, who sought to make the land economically viable through sheep farming and sporting estates. The ancestral tenants were superfluous to requirements and they were cleared from the land, either voluntarily when they were deprived of their pastures and could no longer scratch out a living, or through infamous forced evictions. Whole villages were erased in a time referred to as when the lights went out. Some of the most brutal evictions were on the island of Harris, but little's known about them because the people took their history with them largely to North America. We do know that in the 1830s, in the time of the fifth Earl, the tenants of the Dunmore estates were given three years to quit their land with the offer of paid emigration. When none accepted this offer, the Earl continued with his plans and with military intervention, he cleared his tenants from the fertile land of the West Coast to the rocky East Coast of Harris. Thankfully, the tenants' hardship was alleviated by the fact that the potato grew well in poor soil and it was highly nutritious, and so it came to provide 80% of the islanders' diet. But there was just one big problem. It was highly susceptible to disease on the cold, wet islands. By the time Catherine Countess of Dunmore inherited responsibility for the Harris estate, in 1845, the Highland potato farming was reaching its height, and her tenants were literally starving to death. The Countess is known to have taken an active interest in the Harris estate, from a distance, continuing to live in London. She made an application to the government for a sum of £1,000 to provide employment so that the tenants could afford to buy meal. She also offered free passage to North America for tenants wishing to emigrate, with the offer of cancelling out all rent arrears and providing an allowance to keep them going. But no one accepted. A few years later, she made the same offer to another 12 families. Again, no one accepted. So was her motive philanthropic? As a proprietor, she would have been responsible for the provision of financial relief to her tenants. So perhaps the cost of passage to North America might have been cost-effective in the longer term. She was certainly motivated to find economic solutions. Tweet had always been hand-woven in the Outer Hebrides for the islanders' own use, and she was so impressed with the craftsmanship that she had the Murray family tartan produced in Harris Tweed and then manufactured tweed suits for the Dunmore estate workers. She used her elite connections to promote Harris Tweed as a suitable cloth for outdoor wear for sporting gentlemen and introduced mechanisms to improve the quality and consistency of homemade output. Some of the best weavers were taken to Alloa on the Dunmore estate for further training in intricate pattern making by skilled lowland weavers and designers. There can be no doubt that Catherine Countess of Dunmore effectively launched the Harris Tweed industry and the growing sales of the cloth provided valuable income to impoverished islanders at a time of dire hardship during the potato famine period. She's therefore definitely arguably worthy of her place in women's history. 
But what about the part that she and the Dunmore family played in the destruction of the cultural heritage of the island? Is that part missing from the narrative? Is it a case of, it wasn't me? There you go, ladies. Thoughts on that? It's definitely a tale of two halves, isn't it? I mean, the second half where she's working to bring up the Harris Tweed industry, using the commercial aspect of the marketing of making her estate workers, the Tweed uniforms, if you like, and building up the Tweed industry in Alawa. But the bit before that, where they've actually deliberately put the estate workers or the weavers off the good land in Harris to the rocky land and just had to find their own way with their with their tatty harvest etc which might or might not and then she went to the government for money to help feed the islanders so it's a tale of two halves yes like you helen i'm very conflicted about this one you know when you think about the clearances it evokes a strong emotional response but you can see that she is trying to do something to improve the lot of the people that live on her estates having tried to get rid of them and failed. You know, it's a difficult one. It's such a difficult period of history. But without that, we possibly wouldn't have the Harris Tweed industry that we have today. And I, for one, am very glad for that. <laughs> well, I, and I hope it continues because I've still got that on my bucket list, the Harris Tweed sofa. <laughs> <laughs> I think what interests me is history's take on it. I mean, if you go to the surface, go to the Harris Tweed Authority's website and whatever. This is all about a woman who was so philanthropic, so altruistic. But as you scrape beneath it, she needed to ensure that the, the estates that she'd inherited were sustainable. So this was a way of, of doing it. So, you know, it's the way that history reflects it. And there's another twist to it as well, because alongside her in developing the industry was another woman, a Mrs. Thomas who was married to a naval officer. Now, unlike Countess of Dunmore, she actually lived on the island. She worked with the people and she was responsible for getting them to knit stockings. And again, this was hugely successful and generated a lot of income. And yet Mrs. Thomas barely gets a mention. You know, it's all about, you know, the Countess of Dunmore. That's all that's associated with Harris Tweed. Ah, but you need a title, do you not, to be seen to have done anything? Title always trumps ordinary bods. Yeah, I think in the past it did. You know, those were the people who wrote history and they big themselves up in the process. Yeah, an interesting little link, I suppose, to that is just along from me in Faskley Woods, we have a little loch and it's called Loch Dunmore. And of course, we're in Murray territory here with the Duke of Athol and everything. And when you were talking about Lady Dunmore, you, my ears pricked up and was like, oh, Oh, there's a link here. Yeah, same family, all from the Murrays. There was a, a split in the family around about the time of the Jacobites, and, uh, but it is the, the same clan, Murray. But of course, that was a very clever split, wasn't it? Because if you were on the, the losing side, you forfeited your land, didn't you? So yeah. by splitting, somebody was always going to be on the winning side. You just had to hope it was you or you might lose your head. That's right. Yeah. No, the other half of the family paid the ransom. So that you were all right. You might have to do a period uh. of exile in France, but you were okay generally <laughs> if you had the money to pay. <laughs> Nothing changes, does it, ladies? <laughs> well, Helen, I think it's your turn. Well, yes. And in fact, there's quite a wee bit of linkage too. I'm going to talk about Mary Slessor. She was born in Aberdeen in 1848, but her family moved to Dundee when Mary was 11 years old. 
She attended church and kept up her education by attending the half-time school while still working at the jute mills. I think, Liz, you mentioned half-time schools in a previous podcast. I did. Wishart Church in Dundee, which Mary attended, had links to the Calabar mission in southern Nigeria. And when she was 28, Mary applied to become a missionary with the Foreign Mission Board of the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland. She was accepted and arrived in Calabar just over a month later. Britain was in power there, but was more interested in the maintenance of the trade rather than the welfare of the Nigerian people. The slave trade was still a recent memory in the country. Infanticide and human sacrifice still took place. Women's rights were non-existent and disease was rife. Mary's determination steadily won her the respect of the Nigerian people. She lived among the people she worked with. She became fluent in the local language, Ifik, and developed a deep knowledge of local customs and culture. Mary had red hair and blue eyes and a very strong Dundonian accent, so she stood out from the other missionary workers who tended to come from rather better-off backgrounds than a mill girl. She shocked some of the other ladies by abandoning the impractical Victorian dress style in favour of much looser garments similar to the ones that the Nigerian women were wearing. She cut her hair short and she ate local food. Other women were having food shipped out to them so they could still eat British food. There was a strong culture of superstition and belief held by the local tribes and communities around Calabar. But living with the local people, Mary won their trust and worked tirelessly to improve the lives of women and children. One of the most harrowing customs that Mary found surrounded the birth of twins. It was believed that one twin was the child of the devil. And as you couldn't tell which one, both babies were killed. The rescuing, protection and raising of surviving and abandoned twins and their mothers became one of Mary's key roles in her work in Africa. She is known to have adopted at least nine rescued children who became her family and they worked alongside her in her missionary work in the remoter villages upriver from Calabar. She set up new missions, built churches and schools with the help of the local people. And while this building work was going on, Mary would live in the very basic mud huts, the same as the workers, and she slept on the floor with her family, just like everybody else. Because she could speak the local language, she was able to articulate the benefits of trade over fighting with the local community leaders. Chiefs also became aware of the benefits of their people being able to speak English to better negotiate with traders from other countries in the Calabar port. As the word of the White Ma spread round Calabar district, Mary was called on to help sort out local disputes. Living with the people, she understood fully the background behind local situations and disagreements. Soon she was asked by the local tribes to oversee their justice systems. In 1891, she told the British consul who was charged with setting up a new system of courts that external people trying to settle disputes would be a disaster. And as often happens in these cases, when you tell somebody their plan is wrong, you get the job. She found herself appointed as the first female magistrate in the British Empire. Mary Slessor died in January 1915 in the village of Ouse. She was given a state funeral in Calabar by the British. People travelled many miles from their villages to pay their respects to the White Ma. 
A large granite cross from Scotland marks her grave out in there and a commemorative stained glass window depicting scenes from her life was commissioned in 1923 and is now in the McManus Gallery in Dundee. Her life was also celebrated on the Scottish £10 note issued by the Clydesdale Bank. What a woman. Liz, Susan, any thoughts? I love the fact that she became one of the locals and she lived like the locals. So often people that go on missionary work or whatever else, or whether it's expats of any kind, they kind of tend to stick to their own culture. And it was great that she integrated so much and was accepted. And was accepted because she just, as you say, she lived like a local. She did everything she could. She ate the local food, which was just not done by the other missionaries. I mean, they couldn't possibly eat with the locals. Well, I'm of an age that I learned about Mary Slicer in Sunday school, where, you know, missionary work was one of the, you know, David Livingston and Eric Little and others, you know, were sort of the stories that we learned in Sunday school. And Scotland has always led the way in missionary work, the Church of Scotland, even to this day, because in Scotland, we have huge fundraising campaigns for Malawi. But it's said that we support one of the biggest contributors to the economy of Malawi. I know my husband, he spent time across there helping to set up college structures in the country and they have a hospital boat which goes around Lake Malawi. But there's a lot of people go out to work on the hospital boat, going around and treating people who aren't able to access other medical facilities around the lake. Yeah, I find her work with twins quite fascinating. And the times, she died in 1915 and she was very well known in Dundee. She was a Dundonian. My mother was born in 1915 and my mother was a twin. So the Dundee influence, I'm just thinking my granny must have been very aware of Mary Slessor and her work with twins and what the people in Nigeria had thought about twins. So in 1915, when my mother was born, that would be very much on the lips of the people in Dundee, how wonderful Mary Slessor was. And it shows you, you you don't have to be one of the great and good to be able to go off and do these things and make a name for yourself. You know, I love the fact that she was just an ordinary mill girl. An ordinary mill girl. And the reason that she ate the local food was that, not the main reason, but she saved money. She wasn't spending money on herself to have stuff imported. She was sending back any money she made to support her mother and siblings in Dundee. I wonder in her lifetime how well known she was, because, of course, we don't have the media that we have nowadays to be able to report it? Would it have been reported in local newspapers? Would would people have known? I think in Dundee they would know because the church in Dundee that she had gone to had this link with the Calabar mission. So word would be getting back and forward and missionaries did go back on leave. She only went back once and she stayed on and died out there. That was her home. Very interesting. And it's interesting, the family connection there, Helen, as well. It brings it into perspective. There was a sort of continuity between your mother and the twins and, and her. Susan, you've got a family connection as well. I certainly do. So I remember when I was growing up, my mum, she's got three sisters and a brother, so the five of them together with my granny and my, my great auntie Mary would sit and talk about Granny Morton. And there was a very austere painting of her in my granny's house. And they say, oh, yes, she was the first lady provost of Airdrie. And I just didn't think much about it. And then, of course, last year I started fiddling around with a bit of genealogy. And then when I was trying to work out which lady I was going to pick for this, I thought, ha ha, I could talk about Catherine Scott Morton. 
And so I asked my mum this morning, she said, oh, you should have been on the phone with me and your Auntie Kate yesterday. We were discussing it. So straight on the phone to my Auntie Kate today and she sent me through some stuff. And it's amazing what she achieved. Uh, She was born in 1894 and by... 1940 she was the borough organizer of the women's voluntary service which has since become the the women's royal voluntary service and she was in charge of a clothing store and a first class canteen and also included tailoring services for servicemen so this is you know the second world war she got involved in all of that she was an ambulance driver as well at the outbreak of world war ii And she became the administrator of the Queen's Messenger Convoy. Now, the Queen's Messenger Convoys during the Second World War were basically convoys of trucks with food and sometimes other supplies that would go and help areas that had been attacked in the Blitz. And she went down to London with uh, a number of ladies and helped out in the Blitz in London, but came into her own with the Clyde Blank Blitz of March 1941, when Clyde Bank was hit on the 13th and 14th of March. And she organised a convoy of 11 vehicles, each carrying their own kitchen equipment. And she took them to Clyde Bank to help out the people that were there and that were suffering. And so much so that she actually came home with a six-year-old boy who lived with her for 10 years until his father came to kind of claim him back and take him off to work. But he lived there with her for for 10 years. And he wasn't the only one that lived with her. She did actually have a, a Polish evacuee that lived with her for nine years. And through the war years, she wanted to help all the servicemen that were moving from A to B. And she converted her billiard room in the attic, took the billiard table out and put in nine camp beds. And over the space of three months, she had 50 men put up in her house when they were all looking for billets when they were between trains and moving from A to B. She was quite a a strong and forthright lady in her views, according to an article by Ian McTaggart. And in 1943, she was presented to the king and queen. In 1953, she was presented to the new queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And then by 1954, she'd been a justice of the peace for a wee while, a councillor and a magistrate. And she, she applied to the council. She, she ran as an independent and was elected to Airdrie Borough Council, the first female councillor. And by 1955, she was Airdrie's first female bailey. Now, this didn't stop her doing lots of different things because she was there for anybody that needed help. And my great auntie Mary has memories. So that's her daughter who's still alive. In fact, who's going to hit 95 next week. She has great memories of buttering loaves of bread and helping out making food and everything for anyone that needed it or going off to visit older people in their houses, taking little gifts, going to orphanages, that kind of thing. They would always be calling into people's homes and just talking to them and and all the rest of it. Well, her story doesn't end there because she was offered a British Empire medal, which she turned down because once you've been given an award from the monarchy, seemingly you can't upgrade it. So she turned down the British Empire medal (laughs) and eventually was given the OBE. In 1958, she was elected the Lady Provost of Airdrie and became convener of the health and welfare area as well. She served three years on the board of management for Copebridge and Airdrie District Hospitals and was a member of the Ministry of Pensions Committee. 
Now, as if this wasn't enough, she decided in 1959 she was going to run as the Conservative candidate in the general election for Airdrie. Now, Airdrie is to the east of Glasgow, and I think we can safely call it a Labour or possibly today an SNP heartland. And running as a Conservative candidate was a bold move. And she missed out on being elected by only a couple of hundred votes. And somebody had shouted out to her at one of the hustings saying, if only you would run for Labour, you'd get this easily. And she did manage to cut a huge Labour majority down to only a few hundred votes. And that got her the personal thanks of the Prime Minister at the time, Harold Macmillan. And unfortunately, she died in 1962 at the age of 68 from cancer. But it just shows you that the hidden army of people that do great and good things. And if you look for her on the internet, I managed to find one line about her just saying that she'd got an OBE. And that was it. And that was on Wikipedia. So my aim now is to go and create a Wikipedia page and add to all of her good deeds. And hopefully other people can do the same where they know of somebody, you know, your local unsung heroes, especially if they're ladies. Ladies, in your history, have you got people that served in the war or did anything like that? Well, it's interesting when you're talking about Airdrie there. When I was born, my first home, only for a matter of months, was Airdrie. So, you know, she would have been active on the council, not quite provost at that that time, but active. And if my grandparents had been alive today, they would no doubt have known her. Because my gran came from the Airdrie Cope Bridge area and my mum was brought up there, but we moved out. Helen, what about you? Yes, no, I was just, when you were talking about the WRVS, I mean, I remember my mother being a member of the WVS before it became the WRVS. This was after the war, but there was still a lot of work being done by the WRVS at that time. And they had the green uniform, the kind of the bottle green overcoats and dresses that they wore to do their work. They don't do that now, but at that time they were. And The other thing that you mentioned about the driving the lorries and my Aunt Helen, she, during the war, drove lorries, you know, HGVs almost, around the country delivering goods and parts to the various military bases. But after the war, she wouldn't even drive a car. She was very nervous, but she thought nothing during the war of hurtling around the UK with these great trucks. Yeah, it brings back the idea of women of history. It's the unsung heroes of history, the women that stepped up during the First and Second World War and took the place of the men when the men were otherwise detained. That's right. And I think that in itself, that whole period of history, these were women who previous to that did not work. Their their place was in the home. You're raising the family, keeping the home. That was their work. And then during the war, they just went into the factories. They went to drove the trucks. They did all sorts of things. And then, of course, after the war, they were back, not quite pregnant, barefoot and in the kitchen. But <laughs> they, there was quite a period of time when women were not back in the workplace, they were back in their, what they would thought was the traditional role of being in the house, being the housekeeper. And of course, there was that law that was in place until the late 1940s that said any ladies that were teachers, the minute they got married, they weren't allowed to teach anymore. Yeah, it wasn't just teaching. My grandmother in Airdrie, she had a role as a pharmacist. She wasn't a trained pharmacist, but she worked in the chemist shop in Airdrie. And she had to give up work as soon as she was married. But of course, interestingly enough, my mother worked during the war and she 
worked right up until my older sister was born. But she really saw her job, her role in life was to keep a good house, make sure there was food on the table for the family and just be very supportive of my father in his work. And and she saw that as her role, as her job. She wasn't at all resentful. She loved that role. She loved housework. Well, I didn't inherit that. <laughs> It's interesting because my mother was a kind of generation later than that, if you like, and she was in a transitional period. So because my father's career took precedence and he had to move quite a bit with his work, she didn't pursue a career. And there was always a resentment there that she didn't have, I suppose, in terms of status, she considered it, Mm -hmm. that she had missed out on something. So it was, you know, she was of an interesting era. But I mean, even I, young as I am, Susan, remember (laughs) when we went to get a mortgage for our first house, it was only my husband's salary that was taken into account and just, well, just add a wee bit extra because you're working. But no, you'll be giving up work to have a family soon. Thank God attitudes have changed. Not that long ago. (laughs) I know. You don't know how lucky you are. (laughs) We've worked hard to allow you to live in the world that you live in, Susan. (laughs) And I'm very thankful that you have. So on to our word of the week. Helen. Right. Well, I was talking about Mary Slessor being from the mill girl from Dundee and with a fairly impoverished background, a pie background, and the other missionaries being from a better class. And they could be described as being affi fan touche, which meant they were kind of acting slightly above their station. They felt themselves a little bit better off than they were. Affi fan touche. If you want the spelling, it's A-F-F-I-E, affi, and fan touche, F-A-N-T-O-O-S-H. Affy fan touche. And of course, Affy is a good Dundonian word. It's got the Dundonian accent on it because we've talked about this before, but it's a very strong dialect that you get in Dundee. So Affy is a good, good word for them. Great. Liz, how about you? Well, I was talking about Harris Tweed cloth. And the word I've chosen is clute. So a clute is more a cloth. So a cloth that you would use to wipe your face, a face clute a table clute, so a cloth. And you've probably heard it in clouty dumpling. A dumpling is a fruit cake made by steaming inside a cloth in a pan of boiling water. So a clouty dumpling made in a cloth. How about the phrase, never cast a clout until May's out? Well done, of course, yeah. Never cast a clout till May be out. And it's not May the month, it's May the flower, the Mayflower. Yes, uh-huh. So your clout is like your undershirt. Yes, your clothes. Yeah. What about you, Susan? Your word of the week? I'm going to give you two. Unfortunately, mine are not related to my great granny. Mine are related to the dog who will be going home at some point today. And she has a thing for jumping in the water, but not just running water, you know, like manky water. Manky, I think that's what I used the other week. And she comes out and she's honking or she's minging. Basically, it means she's very smelly. Honking and minging. And you're doing that in a very polite tone there, Susan. You're saying minging. It's minging. She's minging. <laughs> you can tell you're from rural Perthshire, dear. <laughs> well, thank you very much, ladies. It's been another entertaining podcast and I look forward to talking to you soon. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. 
And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.